0: My guest this week is Scott Spradley. Scott is the executive vice president and chief technology officer of Tyson, the world's second largest processor and marketer of chicken, beef, and pork products, with revenues exceeding $42 billion annually. As CTO, Scott's responsible for establishing and driving enabling strategies across all of Tyson Foods' technology platforms, information systems delivery, information security, data analytics, and leveraging emerging technologies such as drones and computer vision. Prior to joining Tyson, Scott was the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer of both HP and HPE, where he executed the largest corporate divestiture and spin merger in history. In this interview, we discuss Scott's purview as CTO and how it compares to his past CIO roles. Scott also shares insights into the company's digital transformation and data strategy. We discuss how COVID-19 has changed the way in which people work as well as the new normal that Scott sees emerging. Additionally, Scott shares his advice to CIOs who have ambitions to join boards, his take on big data, and a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to Timothy Casby. Timothy is the former chief information officer of companies like Reliance Industries, Sears, and Trexon in the Warehouse Group. He's one of a handful of CIOs to rise to the top echelons of a company, in his case as president of an enterprise software company called
1: Zoho. Timothy wanted to share a brief perspective from Zoho. Timothy, take it away. Zoho CRM is many multiples cheaper than the next competitor while being featured in the Gartner Magic Quadrant. Our deployment is way faster than our competitors. We just completed Zoho CRM deployment to over 30,000 employees in one of the largest financial institutions in the world. And we did this in less than a year. Alex Tolbert, founder of Bernard Health says that they saved over 70% cost by switching from Salesforce to Zoho CRM. Imagine what you could do with that 70% savings in times like these. Maybe give that back to customers in forms of deeper discount or share with your employees, or delay putting your employee on the street with no income at all, or invest in your R&D to make your product portfolio even more beautiful. We at Zoho think that this is a unique time for business leaders in the world to do something special. And in that spirit, we have offered free use of our software to businesses that are struggling. Humble to report that over 12,000 businesses globally have participated in this free use program. This is what CRM means to us. Without customers, CRM doesn't matter. Therefore, we are doing all we can to not only help our customers survive, but thrive in this time of crisis. would love to know what CRM means to you, why a certain brand stands out, and we sure hope you take a look at Zoho and what this can mean to you, to your employees, and to your customers. Thanks, Timothy. And
0: now on to the interview.
1: Scott Bradley, welcome to Technovation. Great to see you today.
0: Thanks for having me, Peter. Good to be here. Well, Scott, you were the uh, chief technology officer of Tyson, and I, I wonder if you could take a moment. The CTO role—if you get—if you find ten people who have the title of CTO, they're likely to have ten or maybe even fifteen different purviews. So I'm always fascinated to hear how CTO translates into different environments. Uh, talk a bit about your purview.
2: Yeah, I think uh, when uh, Tom Hayes, who was the CEO that recruited me here, he, he had a vision of you know transformations critical path for Tyson Foods and. And he and John Tyson, who's our chairman, had a kind of a view of uh, blending you know, your traditional IT stack with um, you know, uh, variable components of hardware. So um, my role here is I basically have purview of all technology at Tyson. So uh, whether it's working on bringing in drones or bringing in computer vision or machine learning and, and putting in uh, robotics, uh, those are the things that we typically try to tie together. Fortunately, I think the industry is seeing that that stack is becoming more and more consistently under the same realm because one enables the other so well that you're going to probably see more consistency in the role.
0: Talk a bit about why, you know, so you, in the past, you've been a CIO uh, multiple times over. And I, I wonder, um, did you, was it was it important or meaningful for you, for you to have
2: one title versus the other? It wasn't an issue for me. In fact, uh, you know, I think... Uh, I, I, my motivations for coming to Tyson were because I actually grew up in the state of Arkansas and, and I, had, I had long had this, you know, went to college in California. I've been out in California in Silicon Valley for the last, whatever, 30 years. And I had just always kind of had a dream to come back and, and take what I'd learned and who I knew and what I knew and, and try to help my state. And so for me, whether it was a CIO or a CTO, it really didn't matter. But then I think as the conversations get got going and we started to understand that there's a bigger impact that can be made i remember saying to tom you know are you thinking about autonomous robotics are you thinking about parameter based robotics he goes well we hadn't even thought about robotics and i said well you know i think you get an opportunity when you get the right kinds of data uh, because data is going to be the new commodity for the world but data is what's going to enable everything and I think you have a bigger opportunity to kind of bring all that technology to bear together in one consistent, cohesive manner that benefits your entire enterprise. And so, uh, I wouldn't have cared if they called it CIO or CTO. Um, I, I was I was excited about the role. Period. But then I think as it emerged into a CTO role, which is everything from digital transformation to your traditional CIO role, and then being your kind of chief technologist as well, uh, it was kind of like the perfect dream come
0: true we'll talk a bit about that digital transformation side of things how is that translated into your environment
2: yeah you know it it is uh it's very interesting peter to be very candid with you i think when i got here well i know when i got here we were underway with a uh, an sap upgrade that was going to go live on multiple instances and i i knew because they were variable instances as well that there was going to be some data challenges and and uh, so really kind of one of the first things that happened when I walked in the door was to say, you know what, let's cancel that project and then let's reshape this thing so that we come to a single outcome and, and let's get to a single data model. Let's get to a single uh, approach to data governance and let's get to a single thing around master data because all that data is really what's going to help us. And as we started moving through our digital transformation, there's been process maturation, there's been a lot of process redesign, there's been a consolidation that we're trying to do within our, our supply chain. Uh, for us, I think it, it, when you're as big as we are in the food production area, uh, one of the true opportunities for you really is to try to understand how much of what is going to be consumed. And so we've started to look at building technologies that, that can predict consumption. Uh, worldwide, So, you know, what is this generation group eating more of or less of and how many people in this generational group are going to be eating this or not eating this? And what are the growth rates of these generational groups or these geographic groups and, and kind of getting into the whole thing? Because once you finally truly understand how much is going to be consumed, then you can just kind of reverse engineer that all the way back through your supply chain. And so our digital transformation has really been flowing into that manner. And now we've reached a stage where we're ready to start moving more broadly. We have moved out onto the edge with a lot of things at the on the on the edge with IoT. Uh, we've moved in more and more computer vision and more and more machine learning. And now we're we in fact we even have a lab that we have built that's uh, based on bringing robotics into our production lines.
0: Very interesting. And you yeah. talked earlier. You talked earlier, um, Scott, about the sanctity of data and the early conversations you had with the leadership team at Tyson Foods when you came on board about that being so sacred for very good reason. Can you talk a bit about, as it sounds like at least in some areas, these were you know newer insights and new opportunities? Can you talk a bit about how you your approach to data strategy in an environment like this?
2: Yeah, that's a good it's a great question. I'm glad you've asked it, because I think that that's going to be something that most food companies are going to grapple with. Uh, pretty much most CBG companies are going to grapple with is there's been a traditional manner for how these companies have managed data and how they've used data. And frankly, a lot of the forecasting have been based on historicals. Versus uh, looking at projections and trying to move from reporting, which I like to kind of think of as, you know, that's spilled milk, right? That you're you're reporting on what happened. Uh, There's not much you can do to change what has happened, but there is there are things you can do to change what will happen. And so as you move from that reporting mindset into a predictive mindset and then ultimately to a prescriptive mindset, you get into a position where um, people start to open their eyes with data. And I can even say, to right now, even with the COVID-19 situation, um, it's, it's, been a, it's um, because of some of the things that we've done, A, with our workforce, B, with some of the technologies that we've put in place, uh, C, with the cloud that we've done, uh, we've been able to kind of run ahead and help our operations folks understand what could be happening with their plans, right? So as we look at infection rates, Uh, We look at, you know, take a plant and a plant's in the middle of five counties. We look at the population of each of those counties. We look at the demographic breakdown of those counties. We look at our population within those counties. Where do they live within those counties? What does the outbreak look like within each of those counties? And then we can kind of apply using the Richard's standard curve model, uh, the Richard's general curve model to say, what are the infection rates looking like? And then we can kind of predict and say, hey, this plant may have 35 people that are infected today. But it could be as many as 475 within four days, based on where those people live and and uh, you know where they may be uh, buying their groceries and what the infection rates look like there. I mean, even things foot traffic data, right? So what's happening, Peter, is people who have uh, in the past relied on spreadsheets and data that's in a, a traditional kind of spreadsheet format or you know what I would call a quality. Now they're starting to see what real time instrumentation and predictive looks like. And it's creating a stronger thirst for more. And so it's really enabling our transformation to pick up steam. And I think for our team, um, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with a crisis like this, people just want to help. They really want to help. And knowing that we have these technologies and these capabilities in place, we're able to bring a different level of help. And our businesses are just saying, please give us more, please give us more, please give us more. So it's it's a nice situation. That's really
0: great. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you as you as you've raised the, the current uh, both health and economic crisis that we're in the throes of, at least as we're speaking today. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about uh, resiliency, both in terms of team and technology. Uh, during this time it sounds like a lot of the things as you were just pointing out a lot of the steps you were taking though of course you would wouldn't have been preparing for this specific outcome um, had in many ways prepared the organization to some extent uh, from a resiliency perspective but talk a bit about how that's translated during these times
2: you know um, I think these are First first and foremost, I, I, I'm not being a smart guy by saying these are unprecedented times, uh, but they truly are. There's no human alive that's gone through this this scale because I think the last time this happened was just almost, uh, what was it, what, 103 years ago. So there are not many people that are old enough to recall that if they are alive, uh, what happened, but a global pandemic of this proportion creates a scenario of just epic proportions. And so um, there, there are many, many ways that we're all impacted, and as you as you think about the durability and the resiliency of the workforce working in this period of time, it's it's um, it's all consuming, right? And I think what you see are uh, people who are not normalized to this kind of flow are slowly kind of moving into that, and I think that you're seeing. Um, uh, Acceleration of things that that may not have been moving at the speed that they're now moving. So let's take collaboration for one. Right? So when you think about resiliency, you're thinking about the ability to maintain and accelerate through. And in this case, um, you know, if if I would have come to our executive committee or our board and said, hey, we're ready for a work from home scenario and I really want to go and bring in five thousand people. And just having work from home, you know, we'd, we'd have like the, you know, some kind of massive um, program put up with HR would get involved and we'd have legal get involved. And we'd have uh, the whole, you know, compliance and, and financial models and all this stuff and multiple go and no go decisions. And then we might come to the end of it. And go, you know, it's just too big of a risk. We probably can't make this happen. Yet we decide on a Friday that as of Monday, we're going to be working from home for everybody and what you know so uh, and, and then monday rolls around and you know uh, we go through about three or four hours of tuning our network and all of a sudden boom everybody's highly productive and then we start to see that people are collaborating even more uh, than they had before and there's you know there's no two hour breaks in the lunch room anymore or there's no standing around a coffee machine anymore so people are they're coming in they're sitting down they're grinding they're very concerned about the health and safety of all of our team members who are on the front lines. And so that makes them want to work that much harder, that much faster. And and I think that what we've seen is newfound efficiencies and newfound productivity levels uh, through this kind of uh, this, this situation that we find ourselves in. And I think it's going to have a, a quite an impact on and the whole world seeing it, right. And, and we're going to see what, when this thing ends, how does global, how does global real estate or commercial real estate hold up? You know, um, are, are we going to see hotels and airlines uh, have the volumes that they've had in the past? Because, you know, we've moved from doing what we, for, for like rolling out new implemented products to our plants where we would send out teams you know, it might be 10, 15 people or 20 people that go to a plant and I believe, you know, bring this team up to speed. And now we're doing it virtually. And so we're gaining steam. We're gaining speed through this. Um, we may we may see a lot of changes. And as you go back to resiliency, uh, the team hasn't shown any letdown yet. I've, I've not seen that. Uh, the network has not shown any letdown. It's gotten better and better. I mean, we were very concerned originally that. When you get people at home, it's going to depend on their local circuits of, of Cox or, or ATT or whoever it may be. And you got kids that are home streaming media and playing Minecraft or whatever it is that they're playing. And then you got parents that are trying to do more video conferencing. and so I was very concerned about the resiliency of the network yeah. to support that. but it's held up. Uh, and it kind of goes to say a little bit more about you know digital communications today and in, in the whole the world of digital. That's a much more effective, that's a very long, I've talked for a long time, so I apologize, but there's just so much to say on that topic, Peter. Indeed. I I mean, I wonder then, Scott,
0: do you have perspectives on how many of these changes are going to be permanent or reconsidered? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you bring up the the great point that a lot of organizations are actually uh, contradicted or contrary to perhaps the original assumption that teams are actually very productive and, you know, you know, you've lived in places, especially when you're in California, where commute times for some people can be well over an hour in each direction, uh, giving them some of that time back for themselves, but also gaining some productivity in the lack of a commute. Um, so what, what, as you think about what's gained versus what's lost, of course, of, of team collaboration and cohesion by being together in the same physical location… You know, do do you have a, a philosophy that's uh, that, that's coming together on this?
2: Yeah. So um, thanks for asking that question too, because I'm excited about the new normals that may be created. I, I I literally got chills on my arm because I'm actually very excited about it. I think there's all kinds of impacts, Peter. I, you know, I'm I'm reading things about you know wildlife is returning to areas that they hadn't seen before. Right. Think about the fact that you know I I sent a note to. I own a few cars because I have homes in different places. And, and I sent a note to our insurance guy and said, hey, look, you know, I'm probably spending maybe on average 10 miles a week in a car now across all of our cars. So I'm assuming you guys are going to rebate us some money back because we're not putting in the 3,000 miles a month that you thought. I think there's going to be these just widespread economic changes. And I think you're going to see a lot of newfound efficiency changes. And I think that we're going to see, I was mentioning to our chairman Uh, there are going to be guys who uh, start up virtually today, right? And it's going to be interesting to watch the VCs kind of respond to that and say, well, let's say Peter High gets together with 20 people and Peter High knows some pretty darn good people and says, let's start solving this problem. And then they don't need as much of money to support the burn rate because they're not having to pay for FF&E. They just set up, they're they're using Zoom or Google Hangouts or whatever it is. And, and, And it's been proven now that collaboration can be done in distance. And I think it's going to really challenge uh, some companies who've in the past been limited by their geo their geolocation. Um, I believe that I can say to my CEO, I found 15 people that I want to hire that are in a city that we have no presence in. And, and I'm going to bring them on and they're going to work virtually. And, and I'm excited to see what happens from that because I've long believed, I learned long ago, get the very best talent on the planet and get them on my team, period. Uh, this i think has proven that that's an acceptable approach so i I'm, i get really excited about it Peter i think these are these are uncommon times with uncommon results that are going to become new normals that are going to raise a whole new level of productivity collaboration invention disruption um, just changing the way we live and i mean it, it's it's a it's a it's a don't waste the crisis, God probably said, right? Um, <laughs> this crisis is creating all kinds of new normals that are beneficial to humankind. So I'm excited about it.
0: That's great. It's a good perspective. It's certainly a silver lining to all of this. Yeah. Um, Scott, I wanted to ask you also, You, you, there are a lot of CIOs and CTOs who aspire to join boards of companies, something that you have done. You're on the board of Arvest uh, Bank of Springdale, also on the Arkansas Center for Data Sciences and uh, the TBM uh, management Council, sorry, the TBM <laughs> Council, rather, the, the Technology Business Management Council uh, through Raptio. And and um, curious just kind of how, what your path to board membership was, how, how opportunities presented themselves, the extent to which it's something that you conveyed to the folks of influence uh, to keep you in mind, and ultimately, I guess, what recommendations you'd have for others who you'd wish to follow in your footsteps.
2: Yeah uh, um, gosh, you, you always have the best questions, and, and that's one that's <laughs> on the mind of everybody, Peter. So yeah, I, I think you know my early board experience I, I was fortunate enough to be on the board of the National World War II Museum, and that is an incredible board uh, with a bunch of incredible executives that lead that. And uh, so that kind of. Hometown, brought me along. Is that right, Scott?: Pardon. Is that in your hometown? that was in new orleans yeah and uh that's the the i think that's the third most visited uh, museum in the world right now and it's uh uh and it's led by an incredible ceo and in stephen watson and it's it's just amazing um yeah i don't know i think uh, i i was uh kind of eyes wide open when i got on that board and I, I got onto that because we were trying to help guide them i on on technology they have a lot of assets that have an extraordinary historical value and uh, that put me in that position as i've joined these other boards um i I think there are some things i can say that are good advices to give and and some things to avoid Um, first off i think to be on a board you've got to be in a position to help and and that's a mindset you know i have a great mentor one of our board members is a guy named gordy banister and And we talk about this a lot. And and he often says, you know, don't be on a board that you're not interested in. And if you're going to move into a board role, I think some people move into the board roles for um, kind of the wrong reasons. I think they they think that it's the progression they're supposed to achieve. um, And they really should move into a board because it's something you want to learn more about and something that you can help a lot with. And in my case, the boards that I'm on, uh, like Arvest, they're all about trying to modernize their technology. And that's why they reached out to me. And so I, I very much enjoy the opportunity to bring that aspect to that board and to help shape that company to move forward. And the same thing with the National World War II Museum. TBM is a board where I bring a lot of expertise in sitting and dealing with senior executives and C-suite executives and financial matters. And you look at the cost of technology and how to move some of that cost to better um, uh, better uses. And, and so there's that aspect. I think if I were to try to tell people what's you know what should they do, I think you need to first understand how boards work. What's your role? You're not a worker anymore in that role, but you are in many cases an advisor. Um, you're somebody who's going to talk more about the safeguards that need to be in place. You're thinking about if it's a publicly traded company, the protection of the shareholder making sure that the company's not taking unnecessary risks, but also uh, not taking advantage of certain situations that can further the company's success rate. So um, I I like being on boards. I I enjoy it. Uh, There are boards I've turned down because it's not something that piques my interest or the role doesn't uh, allow me to offer what I can offer. And I've turned down some because I didn't think I was the right person. Um, because I didn't know enough about that industry and I didn't think I'd be better than anybody else just because I've been a CIO and the fortune 10 or something doesn't make me that person. I think you've got to be able to help, um, uh, to be successful in it. Yeah, it makes sense.
0: I, here at the end of our conversation here, Scott, I wanted to ask you about, uh, trends that particularly excite you. We've na- you've named a number of them that you're in the throes of implementing and taking advantage of from <laughs> IOT to better, better data analytics. Um, what are some others as you look in your kind of crystal ball towards the future that are exciting you uh, that you're, you're either thinking about or, or initiating investment in?
2: Yeah, you know, I hate to, to bring us back, but uh, I think data is, is the future of everything. I mean, every day um, I have read that there's 2.7 zettabytes of data being created. And if you think about how much data that is, and, and a lot of people don't, there's 21 zeros in a zettabyte right so 21 followed by uh or, or some number followed by 21 zeros and that's what the size of that is and to give you the, the visual perspective of that the library of congress is the largest volume of information anywhere in the world and in there it has 535 miles of bookshelves so 21 zettabytes takes you all the way to the sun and half of the way back which <laughs> is considerably larger than 535 miles so i think that I have a view and and I, and I said this before, I think that there's so much data in the world today, Peter, that there is no question that is not answerable. I actually believe that you should be able to answer any question out there today because there's that much data. So I think that investing in data and those companies that really understand how to monetize data um, is really where things are going to go. And I think that as you're thinking about autonomous robotics Uh, That's going to rely on data. Right. So um, data for me is the number one thing. And as I think about what I'm trying to do with Tyson Foods, it's all about making sure that there's nobody on the planet better with data than we are. That makes food. And um, I, you know, um, I have a brother who asks me all the time, you know, what should I be investing in? And, And I say stick with the companies that have the most data, stick with the companies that know how to monetize data, that know how to use data, that know how to mine data, know how to gather data and then have access to the most data that's my mindset that's great i
0: also well actually one last question i wanted to ask you you have been an it leader in multiple technology organizations at intel uh, you were the global cio at hpe uh, you've also uh, been, been a, a a tech leader at chevron i should note as well but i wanted to ask, especially in light of let's say your most recent experience prior to this one at hpe where you led an IT function in a company that was filled with technologists across so many different important parts of the organization, different from your current company where I have to imagine at least the preponderance of of technologists are in your IT department. I'm sure not exclusively, but they're not distributed to the extent that they would be naturally in an organization like an HPE. I wonder to what extent your time as a CIO of a technology company has shaped your thinking about the role now as CTO uh, in an organization where that tech talent is, at least on a relative basis, a bit more concentrated. Any
2: thoughts there by chance? Well, there are wild differences in being a CIO, whether it was HP or HPE or Chevron or uh, Tyson. Um, and I I think that... um, It's it's diabolically different in in a company that has, has not, um, I would say necessarily embraced a lot of of cutting edge technology in the past. Um, I think that, you know, whether it was Tom Hayes or it was Noel White or soon to be potentially Dean Banks, uh, they all uh, value technology. And I think that the job changes a little bit differently in, in, in an HP you find yourself arguing quite a bit with somebody about different technologies because they sell a competing technology. You know, at HP, we've had, you know, we've we've had people who are selling, um, you know, some server or some SAN array or whatever it may be. And I may go out and buy uh, a technology that is in competition with what we had. And my kind of uh, I, I might say curtly in some of those arguments, I might say, you know, one of the differences in you and me is you're reading the brochure and I'm reading the manual. Um, I have to know all that this can do, or my team has to know all that this can do. And you really don't. Um, when you come to a place like a Tyson Foods or any food company or CPG company, um, they need to trust that that CIO is going to take that same level of rigor into every decision that they make uh, because you're really trying to build at scale. And that's the biggest difference. I think a lot of folks in the tech stack companies, whether you're in the Silicon Valley or not, they're naturally understanding scale from a technology perspective. But when you're bringing newer technology in the CPG space, a lot of those guys haven't understood technology from a scale perspective. So you really find yourself trying to bring conversations to scale to understand why. And so you spend a lot more time talking about the why. Does that answer your question? Because I, I may have kind of drifted to the side
0: on it a little bit. No, no, no. I, th- I think that's right. I always find that so interesting. You know, as a CIO of a technology company, there's that old joke that you're in a sea of people who feel like they could do their job, your job better than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas when you're the CTO of a major corporation where, you know, as I say, most people are, are ex- certainly experts in a variety of disciplines, but less so technology. You know, there's perhaps a different, a different way or mentality of, uh, in that sort of a role, perhaps.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't I can't talk the depths of the bovine uh, like <laughs> our own Steve Stouffer can, or I can't talk about poultry like Chad Martin can, um, but they don't want to get into the deep water with me about why machine mm-hmm. learning works the way it works or why AI works the way it works. But they do trust that we we trust each other together to be very. Very, very nicely said. Well, Scott Spradley, thank you so much for taking
0: time with me today. It's been a, a great conversation. Great to hear about your career across a number of, of uh, important organizations. Of course, your current experience at, at Tyson Foods and um, certainly wish you and your yours well during this uh, these trying times.
2: All the best to you, Peter. Stay healthy, stay strong. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. And likewise. Bye-bye. Take care.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Thursday when my guest will be Daphne Jones, a former CIO and now a board member at multiple organizations.